Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Engley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how are you doing, my friend? Ryan, I'm doing great today. How are you? I am doing well, and that is enough of our pleasantries because we have a guest today, uh, Jamie Godley. Uh, of Dartmouth College uh, here, Car- college. Did I get that right? It's college, right? Yeah. Even though it's the, yeah. they do grad programs, I was, I was get, get that. Get that they have a couple, but mainly, mainly not. Mainly it's under. A college, yeah. Okay, so that and you have heard his voice, Jamie. It's wonderful to have you here today. Hi, great to be here. We are talking about your area of interest. You ran a very successful symposium at Dartmouth College uh, a couple months ago, uh, which uh, Todd uh, was uh, a speaker at. And uh, we, the whole idea is to get some interviews going about the uh, topic, about the, uh, you know, the pandemic world that we live in, in relation to one of Freud's most famous essays, Mourning and Melancholia, a very famous idea. Um, And we have some... uh, Things to say, you know what? I'm gonna actually, Todd. I, if if, yeah. if it's okay, I'm gonna dro- I'm gonna drop the idea now. I think. Okay. Oh, you're gonna drop it now. You're I'm gonna drop it now. I'm just gonna. Yeah, I can't. I'm gonna just drop it now. Spoiler we're, alert. Yeah, cause, yeah, because we're gonna come back to it in. Uh, I'm gonna say 40 minutes. To, uh, we have a we have a very exciting return in this episode of Slash and Burn McGowan. I'll just put it that way about this essay. Um, but before we get to the slashing and the burning thereof, uh, we need to do some establishment. And uh, Jamie, I want to bring you in on this, so I'm going to ask a uh, a stupid question so I can get an educated response. Uh, mourning and melancholia. Why isn't melancholia just a lot of mourning? Well, um, I think that there's uh, there's a structural difference. Okay. Between mourning and melancholia, and we start to see it, uh, you know, piece by piece becomes established in the in the essay. Um, a few distinctions I would make just on the uh, offing is, uh, you know, the mourning we could say sort of a, a is sort of a problematic of desire, mm-hmm. whereas melancholia is more of a problematic of the drive. Okay. Um, and uh, and I think too that you know uh, I mean we're going to talk about all this I'm sure but. Um, you know, there's a morning melancholy, of course, is one of the metapsychological papers, uh, which Freud wrote right after he wrote uh, his uh, essay on narcissism. So he's particularly focused on narcissistic structure. And uh, so he's trying to figure out via the overlap between morning and melancholia, uh, what is it that, in fact, distinguishes the specific, let's say, torsion mm-hmm. of the ego in melancholia? Um, and, uh, so anyway, all that to say it's, there are a lot of things to say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, uh, one of the things that sort of a shorthand too, I like to point to is that when he says what, um, mourning is about a loss in the, in the world Mm -hmm. and melancholia is about a loss in the ego. Um, and I think there's a lot that kind of unfolds from that. Um, but it's always useful. I think shorthand to think of that. Because uh, another way of reading that might be that mourning is about a loss in relation to the symbolic order or a sim- the loss in relationship to what is not specifically within the uh, imaginary economy mm-hmm. of the subject. And uh, melancholia is something that uh, is a more, let's say, internalized uh, loss. That's fantastic. I, uh, I pre- you did an excellent job answering my stupid question. The reason why I asked it that way is um, I have uh, met a number of people who, like, mourning is a very, like, that's a very uh, common sense everyday term. Most people will use that to describe 
a lot of different things, a lot of different experiences in their own lives or in the lives of people they know. And, um, the, 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 the turn to, I, I don't know, Todd, if this is, if this is something that, uh, you've, you've experienced, but I've, I've absolutely heard this from people that like the melancholic is someone who has mourned to them for too long. And so what I appreciated in your answer and just setting this up, that temporality is not the decisive factor as I think, uh, makes up the sort of common sense understanding of this. Todd, is that, is that right, ring true right. for you a little bit? Yeah, I think that's really good, Ryan and, and Jamie. And I, I think that what I find interesting in your response, and, and even in the question, though, is, you know, most of the time Freud is trying to break down the distinction between neurosis and normalcy, and your question emphasized the distinction. So I think it's I think that's an interesting point, that the, the essay really does do that, unlike other essays from Freud where, or even, you know, he, he the first line of the essay is uh, talks about dreams. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think given the tenor of both your question and Jamie's response, it seems like this essay is going in a different direction. It actually is trying to say, wait a minute, there's a distinct, there's actually more of a distinction than a similarity between mourning and melancholia. And I really like the way Jamie puts it in this Lacanian terms that that mourning is of desire and and melancholia is of drive, except it, it is interesting that this is, this is 1917, I think the essay was published, maybe written a little bit earlier. Uh, so it's pre any notion of death drive, but maybe this is an essay that's that's presaging the discovery of death yep. drive by Freud. I, I don't know. I oh, mean, definitely. You think definitely? I will. You think okay. definitely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's hear that. Uh, yeah. I, I like I like the idea of this as the yeah. um, this is a, a a missing link, an evolutionary step. Yeah, I mean, I, I read it as a turning point, uh, really. Um, well, in connection with the whole metapsychological papers, um, and uh, but you know, we'll say more about that later. Um, you can say about it now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right then. <laughs> Not to defer interminably. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's right. That's of, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, and also to more fully answer your initial question, I mean, in the essay, Freud does describe a type of melancholia that is essentially a pathological mourning. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that as well. I mean, you, you can, of course, have a melancholic relationship to the kind of loss that is also, in a way, a mourning that becomes a sort of interminable mourning. Mm-hmm. But I think that the one of the structural differences that's important um, is that, you know, in melancholia, what you have is a relationship to loss that is almost uh, cauterized mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in its historical significance and becomes pushed forward into the future as a prospective loss. So in my work, I'm really interested in the relationship between melancholia and uh, finitude. Um, and the, the sort of a thought of uh, finitude, uh, Hegel calls the sadness of finitude, mm-hmm. uh, because it's this idea that, you know, essentially because we're going to die, you know, uh, life can become this. And you see this also in the essay on transience in Freud, right? That life becomes a, a, an interminable mourning of, you know, one's own death. And, uh, you know, Freud in the essay on transience, you know, he makes a distinction there. He says, you know, that's that's a. That's an anticipatory mourning. That's an anticipatory mourning before decease. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important. I, I know Slavoj also likes to emphasize this too, uh, that we think of that difference between the anticipatory relationship to uh, loss, uh, or rather what becomes an anticipatory relationship where loss becomes uh, kind of situated in the same place as the ideal 
uh, versus uh, a loss that is uh, maybe more historical, um, that's situated uh, in the subject's um, yeah the subject's history. Uh, so I, I think that's a really important distinction. Uh, that is also a temporal distinction between uh, mourning and melancholy. Well, no, but that's it's interesting. I mean, because I think the um, just in your in, in what you said that that it's not um. It's not temporality in terms of duration. It's, I, I think I like what you said t- is mm-hmm. temporality in terms of, of, of finitude, of like of cut, of end. And it reminds me a little bit, uh, Todd, you brought this up a little while ago. It reminds me a little bit of our friend uh, Jennifer Friedlander's take that um, if she doesn't fear death, if everyone's going to die, <laughs> but if it's just her, like that's that there's something there to be. Uh, to be mourned there there is there's a loss but if everyone's going like if everyone's going to die at the same time then there is a there's no no loss there so i wonder uh if that is uh if, if that is in any way an, uh, an interesting structure or or uh, or anecdote to bring into this uh conversation i mean i think i think i mean i think the answer is like it, it does help make manifest the uh the the idea of the ego in in this which is uh, crucial for freud but um yeah todd what do you think right no that? i think that's great ryan it's it, it also shows why she incorrectly likes the film melancholia right oh god <laughs> <laughs> sorry jennifer <laughs> uh hey the first half of that movie is great i don't know I agree. Agree. No, about. I agree. The first half is really good, and then it just—it's like goes. a full metal jacket. It's like just watch half of the movie and then turn it off. Okay, good. I yeah, it's it's a good point. It's it's true. The first half is really good. Um, so I I like this line that Freud says that in mourning, it's and this comes to this notion of the difference, and I think actually speaks to the to to the thing about Jennifer. Mm-hmm. In mourning, the it's the world that's become poor, but in melancholia, it's actually the ego, and mm-hmm. I think. That's I find that fascinating that that this that the 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 person who's mourning finds that the world is no longer adequate, whereas in melancholia it's something about oneself that's that seems worthless and inadequate, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. and he even says I think he even says something like morally despicable, right? Like this this so the <laughs> yeah. melancholic is constantly reproaching itself for its own for its own failure, and so that that I think is. Like that, that. So I wonder if the even the film Melancholia is about the turn from, from. It's almost like the film Melancholia is the turn from Melancholia to mourning, to right? mourning like in it, the opposite direction. That's yeah, it's, it goes in yeah. the opposite direction, right? Like that, that, and and maybe that's what. Um, like if it's your own death, then it, there's a kind of melancholia attached to it. But if it's the death of everything, then it can just be mourned in a normal you know, non-pathological way. I wonder about, I mean, I, I just, I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility, but I, I do think that, it, that I find that move by Freud kind of interesting that, that mourning is, is the loss of investment in the world and melancholia is the loss of investment in the self or the ego. Yeah. You know, and, and think too, I mean, he, uh, again, he's really preoccupied with this turn in his uh, metapsychology um, or really what necessitated for him to develop a theory of his own metapsychology, uh, which is uh, these sort of new, uh, this sort of new uh, material about narcissism, and uh, so he's thinking a lot about this distinction between kind of a narcissistic attachment uh, versus uh, object attachment. So, or the difference between, because so, you know, he's thinking about psychosis and you know megalomania and things like that. You know, what is it's happening in a case like Schreber where you know, uh, you know, he, he thinks like, you know, the world is ending, 
in in his own mind. You know, he's just sort of this megalomania kind of corresponds with this sort of end of the world feeling, uh, which is um, if we could think of that as a kind of mourning, that's like a it's a it's a it's a, a mourning on a on a very massive scale. Um, but I think that he what he's trying to do, I think, with that distinction between the world and the self, partly is to suggest, well, first of all, that there's there's a kind of element of critique in both mourning and melancholia, but you could say the direction of the critique is different. Um, the critique in, in mourning is about uh, a dissatisfaction felt in um, the way things, let's say, played out. <laughs> Um, could be a relationship that, you know, had its ups and downs and one is mulling it over in the mourning process versus in melancholia, it's a critique that, uh, you know, the target of the critique is directed against the self, but in order to get at the, um, the what is being criticized in the other. So is the difference between, I wonder what either of you would say about this, is the difference between mourning and melancholia, the difference between... Uh, right-wing politics and left-wing <laughs> politics. Very interesting, Todd. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, that the right-wing, like, it's always an external, like, it needs the enemy that it mm-hmm. has to attack, whereas the left wants to attack itself, and then, you know? It's interesting. Know. Todd, I, well, sorry, Jamie, if I'm going to jump in on that one. Um, I think that, I think that you're right, and, and, and Todd, I think this is correct, and I think that this is a key reason why um, mainstream left-leaning I'll, I'll, I'll phrase it uh, politics is a frequent loser in every country because it's it is so much more appealing to think that the problem is, is outside and the problem is the rest of the world so like and, and you don't have to have any kind of subjective uh, interrogation whatsoever but, but why which is, is that not, more, well I understand oh, why you're saying that but why yeah. is that more appealing? Yeah. Like if um, Freud is right, if Freud is right that there is this satisfaction in attacking one's own ego, mm-hmm. right? Then why is it more appealing to find an enemy that's responsible? That's pretty good. Unconsciously. I, yeah, yeah. I I mean, I think I think that um in the pol- in the political reading and in in reading this uh Maybe okay. How about this, Todd? What would you say? This that you you um you get to extend, uh, you get to extend the pleasure of of mourning in that way by not having it turn toward the self, like the self, the self, the so. Okay, so consciously, it's 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 in this. Okay, so now in this political diagram, finding yeah. the villain. This is a this is a conscious act. Okay, right. So right. and that and that now is is mourning, and so which. Which which slots the melancholic uh, into the position of the unconscious and the position of drive. So right. it's actually you get the you get the pleasure of the, uh, the of the villain of the target and the enjoyment of the drive and the melancholic. Where in, it's flipped, attempted to be flipped in the uh, left leaning right. way. Does that make sense? Right. What do you think of that? No, that makes total sense. And I, I just, I, I, I'll, I, I'll, I'll turn the word over to you two in a second. But I, I, I feel like this upcoming election in Colombia and uh, Goebbels both make this same point. So, so <laughs> Hernandez, I think, is the is the right wing populist guy's 
name. I have a friend in Columbia who's informing me about this. And he said one of the things he's campaigning about is we need to sacrifice more. We need to work not eight hours a day, but 10 hours a day. So <laughs> and it, it reminds me of Goebbels' Totala Krieg, right? Like the, you know, like the Fuhrer is going to ask us to, you know, not work again, like not 10 hours a day, not 12 hours, more and more like that. Mm-hmm. So this, so I think that, but what's interesting is it's tied to the notion of there's an enemy that we're trying to defeat. So we get, so mm-hmm. I think you're right. Like you get both things, right? Like you get the, uh, you get the pleasure of the enemy mm-hmm. in the, in the, this morning process. And you get this melancholic self-sacrificial drive at the same time, which is functioning unconsciously because you think it's just in pursuit of the pleasure of relating to the enemy. Well, that's, I think that it sustains it, Todd, doesn't it? Because that's how it sustains it. Right. Because the more that you suffer subjectively, that tells you that the enemy has not been defeated. That's right. That's right. That's right. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Jamie, what do you, do you buy that? Well, yeah, no, and I've written about this specific problem, actually. I have an essay coming out on cultural critique on uh, Lacan and the Confidence Man, a reading of Melville's novel. Nice. Man. Oh, you're yeah, a great novel. You're speaking yeah. our language. I was language. trying to think through this sort of <laughs> populist. Yeah, no, wait, you guys should do another episode on the Confidence <laughs> Man. Invite me back. <laughs> I have a, a lot of fun talking about it. Anyway, um, but I I think it, well, and you know, really the go-to theorist on this is Benjamin, right? Because he's all he's all over uh, this problem, Uh leftist melancholia, right? Or liberal melancholia, probably be more precise. Um, there's a way that liberal politics undermines itself, uh, particularly when it's faced with the enemy. Um, and I think that it's a combination of something like guilt uh, and like a, a sort of a guilty relationship to the complicity uh, that is to a certain extent disavowed on the left or liberal politics anyway. Um, and, uh, and, and as you're saying, like the need for there to be an enemy, um, uh, I don't think, I don't see it as a left right dichotomy. I think it's in both sides, although I don't really see conservatives, uh, uh, right wing, especially in America now as having anything to do with mourning, at least not in any way that they're you acknowledging. You don't think not so? You don't Freud think they're mourning? About, isn't, no. isn't the very term MAGA yeah, a, I, a mourning? No, I think it's melancholic. I think it's because it's about it's a, well, first of all, it's a kind of nostalgia, you know, it's a make America great again. But a nostalgia for what? It's exactly like the lost cause was for the Confederate South. You know, it's this thing that Dixie, you know, it never existed. Of course. But, uh, but that, Dixieland. But isn't that, you know? well, I don't understand why that's incompatible with mourning. Well, in the essay here, Freud is saying that melancholia, what you're dealing with, especially is a relationship with an ideal loss. Yeah. And uh, that's what MAGA is. It's a it's an America that never existed, so ideal in almost a pure sense, um, that has only existed as a sort of vague idea. Because if you really try to, you know, parse it, there's really not much, not much substance there. You know, it has, of course, linkages to a lot of different things as xenophobia and uh, uh, colonialism. But, but I think, you know, it's. It's important that it, it's vague. Jamie, um, can, can I ask? I, I, I feel like it's a so you and you you know this you know this better than I do. So you feel free to tell me that I'm wrong. I feel like it's a problem for either Freud or for you to link nostalgia to melancholia because the thing about nostalgia is there's a bit of a two step with the way that we use that term today. Is like we 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 when people in the common sense way use the term nostalgia, 
they mean like it's it's like like you're well exactly what you said it's it's this maga thing it's this this thing that never existed it's a time where nothing hurt and everything was perfect but that's not nostalgia nostalgia this great greek mashup of two words right it's like nostos and agalma i think i've got it right maybe i'm wrong about that sorry all classics majors but what it literally means is pain for home so there's a Mm -hmm. there's a cut in homesickness yeah yes there should be a cut in nostalgia but in maga there's not so 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 can you square that circle for me because i i don't know that it i don't think it's i think nostalgia as a is is a, is a pretty big i would say like it's a theoretical term it's also a, a common term that you, you you hear in a lot of different places and i think it's a problem that there is no cut when people talk about it and i think if you're going to bring it into a political reading of this i think the fact that there's no really there's no cut in MAGA and there's no cut in, uh, in like the marketing of nostalgia, like this, like, Oh, and, and this is happening now with like the nineties, the nineties are being re-rendered as this time where there were no problems, uh, which is really funny because like, that's, that's how, that's how we got here is because of the nineties. I mean, like if Clinton doesn't destroy uh, welfare as a cash program and, and the two, the two of them invent super predators and, uh, you know, Biden passes the uh, gets gets the the student loan thing. Like all the all the stuff that are the contemporary problems are in the '90s. But there's this rewriting of it as as this time before 9/11 where nothing happened. So anyway, I I I would be hesitant. And you could, again, please tell me you tell me that I'm wrong. I would be hesitant to to put nostalgia on the side of melancholia because there's no cut there whatsoever. At least in this formulation well, no, related to, to MAGA. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with the point that there's no cut uh, in uh, in the kind of nostalgia I'm mentioning. To me, the the I mean, wh- however we use the term nostalgia, I mean, we're talking about different forms of a relationship to memory, right? Okay. So it just seems to me that you know, yeah, there is a kind of relationship of mem- historical remembering that um, that is uh, that you know that is capable of critique. Uh, you know, that's capable of situating things in the past in a sort of problematic way or to see, you know, ambivalently, as mm-hmm. to use a term Freud is using throughout this essay, mm-hmm. um, versus uh, that kind of nostalgic, idealizing fantasy. Um, and it's not that, you know, nost- so nostalgia, I think, to me, nostalgia describes a way of fantasizing the past rather than remembering. Okay. And I know others disagree with that. No, I like and that. I know there's a, no, no, there's that's, a history that's fine. Yeah, there. Yeah, I that's think fine. that's really yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Is the, and I think I so I like that. My my uh, good friend and dissertation director I've mentioned before, Walter Davis, says I probably even cited this before. He says nostalgia is that utopia is nostalgia projected into the future, and he means that to be critical of both nostalgia and utopia precisely for this phantasmatic element that you identify Jamie and so I guess my question is but doesn't I, I guess my I, I'm not sh- I don't see and this is I think the source of Ryan's question about nostalgia like I, I I'm not sure if I see the identification of make America great again with with melancholia for this reason like doesn't Freud think that the ideal or the object or whatever it is that one is melancholic about was once had that, that you've actually lost something. And I think, isn't the point of nostalgia that you've, what we've lost is what we never had, which is why Ryan gave that description of the 90s, right? Like that, that we've lost something we didn't have. That's why we're nostalgic. And if you really had it, you wouldn't even be nostalgic about it. You'd just be like, oh, those, that was fine. That was a nice time, right? Like, I think that that's an important, so I don't know. I mean, you, you know this essay a lot better than I do, 
Jamie. So do you think that would would Freud can he allow for that 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 the melancholic is 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 has melancholia about an object or ideal or idea that never existed? Well, you know, remember it's it's an unconscious uh, loss, right? So so it, it, which means it's displaced. Um, it's not that there isn't some there perhaps was something a something. Um, and I think in MAGA too, there is a something, right? Make America great again. Whatever America is in the, as a subject in that uh, formulation, there's a something there um, that's vague. Um, and it's enough of a something that uh, people respond to it. Actually, this takes us right into one of the most important, I think, quotations in the essay that I wanted to talk about. So this, this would be, I think, a good way to kind of try to parse that. And so when he says, um, in cases where melancholia and mourning overlap, uh, what he calls a loss of a more ideal kind, uh, he says, this indeed might be so, even if the patient is aware of the loss which has given rise to his melancholia, but only in the sense that he knows whom he has lost, but not what he has lost in him. And I think that distinction between the who and the what is really important. Really important. I agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, too, is a distinction you can make between mourning and melancholia. With mourning, there is a loss of the what, you know, there is a, or more precisely, a what of the who. Uh, there is something that you have lost in losing that person. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that this is like the object A, this is that which is in you more than you uh, or that which, you know, sort of grounded the love relationship, uh, you know, this, this kind of a singular thread uh, in the other person that in when someone mourns, like they, they miss, like, there's a line in that Elizabeth Bishop poem, uh, uh, one art is a, it's like a, a joking, it's like a laugh and a mm-hmm. joking expression, you know, like those little bit, those little metonymies of the person that are really singular or signature. Um, that's the what, you know, that's this kind of like, really specific uh, sense that in losing this person, I've lost this, this whole uh, dimension to my life. Um, whereas the melancholic, there's still this what, there's still this something, uh, but the something is unconscious and there, there's not a sense of locating it. They can't locate where that thread is. And I think that's, that's a crucial distinction because it, because it's a, you could say that it's a loss of the big other, in a way. It's a loss of the big other, but not the loss. It, it, the loss is not situated at the level of the petia, you know, to put it in Lacanian terms. Um, this is at least how I, I read that. Um, Jamie, I have a so question I for that, you. I, yeah. I, 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 the characteristic Y theory interruption. Uh, the uh, my, my question you brought up Elizabeth Bishop, uh, which uh, one art is a, a, a poem I love very much. Uh, is very short. Everybody should read it if they don't know it. Um, uh, it's a it's a villanelle, but m- it, it, not just that's that describes the form, which is how the poem is the only reason why the poem completes itself because the by the time you get to the end, the uh, the speaker does not want to right. That's that great dash. Mm-hmm. Write it like disaster to complete the form. Um, but in terms of the uh, the content of what's being worked through is it's a it's an elegy. It's a it's a poem, which an elegy, uh, the, a poem commemorating a loss. So mm-hmm. I I have it. So, I, so this is my my question for you. What where where do you where do you place elegy? Because I'm because like is is it is it mourning, is it melancholia? 
And is that perhaps a, a, a threat? Because I don't think, because I, I think in this in, in this formulation, if maybe if we want to put nostalgia on the side of um, of MAGA, I can maybe be okay with that. But I don't think elegy can be on the side of MAGA. And and I and and then no. where, where? Okay, all right. Okay, 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 okay. So then, then so then, I guess. So I'm just I mean, it depends on the elegy, of course. Oh. I mean, you know, uh, I also do work on uh, Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, American Civil War stuff. And I can tell you that, you know, there are Confederate poets who write elegies to mm-hmm. the Confederacy. But I would not describe those elegies. I would say they're elegies, but I would not describe them as works of mourning in the sense that Freud is unpacking. Okay. Because it's not a there's no there, there's no process of working through. There's mm-hmm. no no encounter with the difficulty of what it means to have lost the thing. Okay. You know, it's a kind of repetition compulsion instead. It's a kind of like a re-experiencing of a kind of wounded pride. Um, and in, it kind of like settles into this kind of almost programmatic response, which is ideological, you know, in the, the, the lost, that's the lost cause ideology. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not mourning. It's actually, um, it's actually a, de- a resistance to mourning, um, but it necessarily comes close uh, to to mourning in order to be a resistance to to mourning. If that makes sense, okay. You know, there is something to mourn. There is something to mourn in even the lost cause of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm almost tempted to say lost cause there. You know, is already psychoanalytic. You see the lost cause, you know, mm-hmm. object cause, lost object, right? It's, uh, there's something there's something perhaps to be unpacked there. So Yeah, but again, isn't it the same point that I mean the, the, the wouldn't the psychoanalytic point be that that lost cause only comes into existence when it's lost? And 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 is isn't like I, I wonder so you I, I like how you did it at first. So you you aligned mourning with desire and melancholia with drive, but now it seems like you're just from what you said about the elegy and about the association of MAGA with melancholia, it seems like that the valence is is kind of flipped in your mind. That that mourning is actually the, I don't know, uh, the best way to relate to loss, and then melancholia is actually pathological. Whereas. I don't know. I mean, I, I thought your linking of melancholia with drive in the beginning was suggesting almost the opposite, that that mourning is a failure to grasp the constitutive status of loss, whereas melancholia actually does that. That's why it has this association with drive. You see what I'm saying? Like, I feel like yeah. it's it's kind of I'm, I'm, I just I just would, I just I'm not it's not clear to me where you come down on there. I don't know. I don't want to be too simplistic about relationship to politics, but just relationship to, you know, theoretical, like what what each one is doing. Yeah. I Well, OK. Yeah. So I OK. So I, when I say that, you know, there's a, dis, you know, distinction between, you know, mourning is a problematic level of desire and melancholy is a problematic level of drive. And that's, you know, following the essay, what Freud is saying in the essay, because when he talks about the, what he calls the work of melancholia, he's talking about a relationship to uh, what thing presentation he mentions, right, right? Right. So we have even Das Ding in a way, you know, it's right there in a relationship to melancholia. It's this object of the drive. Um, but, I, and I, but that doesn't mean that a subject in mourning necessarily doesn't have 
a sense of a constitutive relation to, let's say, lack, because I, I would distinguish between lack and loss, actually. For sure. Um, mm-hmm. Loss, uh, at least in my, you know, my, my view, is that loss still has an important connection to the historicity of something. Um, so I kind of reject the move that happened in the uh, 90s and, you know, early 2000s, you know, Derrida and Butler, you know, where they started to read, um, I, I, they basically melancholized mourning uh, and they made mourning into a general structure of subjectivity. Um, and I, I think, you know, so they made mourning into this kind of like as if time itself is a mourning. Right. And I you know, I kind of get in a way because, all right, so it, it's acknowledging that there's a constitutive, let's say, negativity in the subject. Um, and we begin with absence, not with presence. That's important. Um, but that's not mourning. You know, it's not mourning already to say that. that there's a process that Freud is describing. It's a process that necessitates a certain relationship to history and to a historical remembering. And I think it's really important to separate the dimension of, uh, let's say, an encounter, uh, a kind of experience uh, of someone with a more general kind of uh, disposition towards um, uh, reality, right? So that, 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 there's a, that there's a constitutive negativity is not ruled out in the case of mourning. I think what, what's the case is more like, um, you guys were saying this in your episode on uh, psychosis, I think. And actually, recently, people have been talking about melancholia as possibly a psychotic formation, right. so it's not too far afield. Right. Is that you said something like, in melancholia, there is the acknowledgement that the big other doesn't exist, but it's kind of premature. And mm-hmm. I like that very much. I think that's true. Uh, and, you know, Zizek's about psychosis, is, about, sorry, very quickly about psychosis. We, we, we said that you said melancholia, but if you want to make them, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. 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 About psychosis. And, and also, I'm, it, it, you know, to, we could talk about this too, but more recently people are talking about melancholia as a psychotic, mm-hmm. um, as a psychotic structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can, we could talk about that, but, but, but the, but this point that I thought was very good is that, is that there's a loss or you didn't say in terms of loss, but like this kind of acknowledgement that the big other doesn't exist happens almost prematurely in the case of a, a psychotic. Um, and whereas the more, quote unquote, normal disposition is, first of all, to believe almost naively in the existence of the big other and then to know that the big other doesn't exist. And so I would say something kind of similar is at stake here in relation to this question that Todd raises um, is that I think that the melancholic almost just dives into the constitutive loss, but without the relationship to the historicity or rather the symbolic um, that gives, let's say, a little more nuance, uh, a little more of um, uh, localization or singularity. So there we come back to this point that, that in melancholia, they don't know what they have lost. They don't have the specific coordinate of the loss in their history, but it's just a total loss. It's a loss of, you know, the whole horizon of their, mm-hmm. in I th- a way. It's yeah, that's sort of... Yeah. Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no, I I, I think... Yeah, I think I like that. I, I think... Um, uh, 
and we could we we can we can move along, Todd. I don't I don't know. Well, actually, no. Yeah, hold on. I'm ask I just wanted to, to underline this because yes, I think it's ahead. a really good point, and I think I really like what you said, Jamie, about how in mourning you what you're mourning is precisely the objet or the you know the little gesture, or the little expression, the little turn of phrase of the other person, and I think that's really good. And then and then in melancholia, the reason you become overwhelmed by the melancholia is because you can't you can't f- identify precisely what it is in the other that's that is that that you've lost which is it, it does then tie it's interesting then because it does make it clear that 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 explains in a certain way this what freud calls this self attack of melancholia is because it can't be localized in the object right like you can't you turn into like I'm going to attack ever myself because I can't find this thing that I have lost. I, I can't identify what it is that I've lost in the other, this object in the other that I've lost. I think that's really good. I think that makes a lot of sense. Does that uh, does that tie up your uh, your political question, Todd? Do you think? Or, or? Well, kind of, but I I still I still. Uh, I, I still I'm still attached to my idea of uh, <laughs> of of mourning as a as an inherently rightist project and melancholy as a leftist one. But I'm I'm willing to put that aside for just for my as my own my own private pathology, and we can we can move on. I wanted to ask Jamie. So one of the things Jamie. So this this actually can tie together Jamie and. Rebecca Comey, who wrote a book called Morning Sickness, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, uh, which is a great book on Hegel. Uh, and she's book. psychoanalytic as well. So, uh, and she references this essay in that, in that book. Um, and, and Jamie, you think a lot about the relationship between Hegel and, and this essay. So I wondered if you could just sort of flesh out for us a little bit what, where you see the linkage between Hegel and what Freud's trying to do. What's Freud trying to do here? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, yeah, so I have a, an essay uh, in Diacritics uh, from a few years ago on this. is uh, Infinite Grief, um, Hegel, Freud, and Lacan on the Thought of Death. And anyway, this is... So what's interesting to me is... And you see this, I think, especially in that little essay on transients. I don't, have you guys covered that one yet? We haven't covered it, but we both know it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is one philosophers love yeah. that text, of yeah. course. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it's about, and that is about a relationship to time. And, you know, it's basically to just recap it very quickly. You know, you know, Freud is talking about, he's wandering the countryside with two companions, possibly Rilke and Salome, people think. Um, and, uh, you know, How one of them Salome is a poet. How could Salome get around without the head? So continue. What? <laughs> Sal- what? No. I've, oh, right, right, right. Ahead, right, right. right. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, anyway, it's a, it's so a, it's a you dad know, philosophy the... joke, but basically is what I've just done. <laughs> uh, uh, Salome or uh, Rilke looks at the uh, you know this beautiful surrounding nature and everything. Is it? And and it's just right around the time of the war, right? So World War One is happening. And he says, like, you know, I, I, I only feel gloomy when I look at this beauty because I know that this beauty is bound to be destroyed and, you know, everything is, you know, bound to die. And it's a, so I had this sort of disposition. I know some people really don't like the idea that this is Rilke. And maybe it wasn't because uh, people like to think, you know, Rilke's uh, attitude toward 
uh, uh, mourning and death is a little more nuanced. But, but, um, but basically, the criticism Freud makes in the essay of this, this poet is that, you know, it's a mourning before decease. He's looking at everything in terms of where it's headed, where its termination is, and taking that end and putting it forward as if one is already at the end. You know, and this is a common, I want to say, like a not just melancholic, but an obsessional strategy where you kind of like, you know, you have anxiety about something that's impending and you just obsess about it and think about it all the time so that you're kind of like taken out of your day to day life because you're so wrapped up in this possible future that hasn't even happened yet. Um, So I think there's like an anxious version of it as well. But the but the but anyways, all that's to say is like. This is, if you read Hegel and you read uh, like the greater logic when he talks about the, uh, finit- the problem of finitude, which is a big part of Hegel and his critique of Kant, um, it's bad infinity, right? It, it's, uh, the problem is that there's a relationship to uh, exactly mourning before decease, uh, where it's like the hour of, he says, the hour of one's birth is also the hour of one's death. And so for Hegel, this is part of the problem in Kant, because part of Kant's sort of, let's say, a priori ways of, of, of thinking uh, is to kind of bring forward the end, uh, you know, rather it's sort of to jump to the end rather than to go through uh, what Hegel loves to talk about, the moments, moments of something. So in other essay, in other works of Hegel, uh, he uses this phrase to describe bad, bad infinity called infinite grief, uh, or sometimes you could also translate it as infinite pain. And um, what's fascinating is that, um, you know, this is, he describes it in two ways. There's an infinite grief that is what he associates with Kant and the Kantian project, uh, which is almost, uh, that has a kind of nihilistic implication. It's an infinite grief where you're sort of paralyzed by, it's literally the loss of infinity for Hegel. It's a loss of the, the, even the concept of infinity. It's where like all of the categories of thought are kind of infected with finitude um, and thought loses its infinite capacity to roam wherever it likes. Um, and so there's this kind of uh, sense that everything is limited um, and limited ultimately by death. And so that first kind of infinite grief is almost a paralysis, uh, where you're just like, it's too much for me kind of thing. Um, and then there's a, but then Hegel says, and he says this in his early essay, Faith and Knowledge, there's another disposition toward infinite grief, which is to regard it as a moment. And it's actually, he says the death of God, he says, um, you know, long before Nietzsche, uh, the death of the death of God, uh, where you regard it as actually a moment in thinking, and not as um, as the answer or some kind of ultimate um, uh, reality. Uh, where basically this changes the thought of death from being something determinative of the self uh, to death being something that's sort of imminent to life. And, uh, and I think that's, a, that's where it connects up with uh, Freud, because Freudian, the Freudian concept of mourning would, and you see this also in essays like Thoughts for the Times on War and Death, which is only written a year after, you know, Mourning mm-hmm. and Melancholia during World War I. Uh, he says the unconscious knows nothing of death. Well, what does he mean by that? 
what he means is that death is, and it's not that different in a way from Heidegger's, that death is already in life. We have no experience of death. It is impossible to experience one's own death. All we have, or the closest we have to an experience of death is mourning. And so, so that's what he's trying to think through. And, um, and then one last point to make is that, is that um, you know, a, a, people don't really emphasize this aspect of the essay in Morning Melancholia, but, but a lot of this is also coming from Totem in Taboo. And if you read chapter two of Totem in Taboo, which people often don't read because they focus on the last chapter right, about the, right. which is endlessly fascinating, mm-hmm. Primal Horror and Primal Father, but, but chapter two, which is about ambivalence, uh, it actually has the whole argument of mourning and melancholia already there. Um, so, and he situates it in, in relationship to a theory of ghosts, which takes us back to the essay on um, Hamlet or the seminars on Hamlet the, from before, the Lacanus, uh, his reading of Hamlet, uh, because he actually, although he doesn't cite it directly, he's clearly drawing from Totem and Taboo when he says at one point, you know, uh, if you look at the play Hamlet, you know, all throughout it's about a kind of mourning process that doesn't carry through because the rituals aren't in place, you know, and all of that, you can find that in Totem and Taboo. Like when the rituals for mourning are not in place, then you have ghosts, you have the undead, you have all of this, like, uh, uh, and Lacan even says, like, psychosis. Like he compares it to psychosis. There's a for, there's a, a foreclosure. So that um, that makes it like, uh, I mean, Zizek always likes this, this uh, about uh, Stephen King, is that pretty much... Well, I don't know why I say everything, but most most Stephen King is the uh, the death rituals have not been observed properly mm-hmm. or they have yeah. been undone in some way and something comes back and it's just a little wrong. Like that's the that that's that's the uh, that's that's a that's a that's a common uh, King uh, twist. And uh, I think uh, you you, la- mm-hmm. you laid out the, uh, a lot. I can, can, can I try to can I, I would like to go sure. maybe back to front through that because we ended with. Um, we ended with Lacan and Hamlet and the uh, the debt that his reading in Seminar Six has to Totem and Taboo. But I want to go back to uh, some of the the Hegel and Infinity stuff, which is really rich in your um, in your representation of it. Um, something that you will not have just because of the way that we've done recording, because uh, Todd and I are both going to be on vacation a little bit, so you will not have not heard our episode on Quilting Point because we uh, just recorded it the other day. Um, so, ah. Something that you uh, were putting together uh, with. Hegel and the the moment and this uh, I, I find this this is really really important I think that it, it, it is vital for mourning and melancholia is the movement movement moving of the end as the ultimate sanction on anything and mm-hmm. what we kind of again you have not heard this but it will be out before so that's just like how podcast time works um, the uh, what we kind of came to with talking about quilting point is that uh, Lacan uh, talks about it in seminar three and he associates the idea of the quilting point with end, but he also doesn't in his example uh, when in working through um, uh, Racine's uh, like a bit of uh, Racine's play, he makes quilting point as this thing, this, uh, this, this, this mooring of retroactive meaning. And he kind of puts it at the end, but he also says that what quilting point has to do is it's, it uh, is this, um, it emerges. Did you say retrospective and prospective? And prospective, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It emerges to uh, mm-hmm. to to fix 
meaning both retroactively and prospectively. And that's, that's the, that, yeah. that's the important thing. And so that's kind of what we, what we keyed on is that like, we're trying to separate the idea that quilting point has to have this intimate connection to end, which it doesn't even in Lacan, if he's following his, uh, like if he's following himself to the letter, which is that's for us to do. He doesn't necessarily have to do that. Um, he also says quilting. Yeah, no, totally. But it's punctual, yes, right? Yes, it's a it's punctuation. Just, right, right. Yes, exactly. That's the key thing. Right. That's the key thing. Punctum, like uh, Bart talks about yeah. it in uh, Camera Lucida. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. I, Jamie. Yeah. I really, I really like what you're saying there. I mean, I think that in a certain way, it's the difference between Hegel and Spinoza, right? Like for Spinoza, death is just an absolute outside, right? Like there's no. You know, uh, what does he say? The, the free person thinks of death least of all things, and his philosophy is a meditation on life, not on death, right? Like, but I think Hegel's point is if, if you have this infinite grief, you have to, that has to be, that's part of, that's within existence. It's not about something that's to come. And I think that's really, I mean, I think you're right to say there's a kind of proximity to Heidegger. I mean, I don't know. Heide- maybe it's maybe it's you could read it the other way in Heidegger, but I think there is this like Heidegger's notion of anticipatory resoluteness seems to be along the same lines, and I think that's really good. Like, I think that 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 it it, it has a way to alter every moment. Like, I, you know, this idea that oh, if I knew I was going to die, I would do X, Y, and Z. But wait a mm-hmm. minute, why? How do you know that that's not? coming intimately so you should organize your existence so that that at, at any moment when it comes because it's always going to come as a surprise that you're you've done x y and z right like i think that that's a that seems to be to yeah. me hegel's position and i think that does correlate with what freud's getting at in this essay i think that's really good i mean i think i i like that essay by you a lot and would encourage people to read it but i think that that's really i think that really gets at the heart of this nice conjunction between Hegel's project and the psychoanalytic project. Uh, thank you. Yeah. It, you know, I just want to say that the anticipatory thing as well, it, it's very, it's very important. And uh, I was very pleased to hear at the conference that uh, Ken Reinhardt had a very similar reading of it that I, than I, I did, uh, which is that what he emphasizes, if you look at the process of mourning, right, the working through piece by piece and so on, he says, it's about memories and expectations. But I think it's important that we see those as linked together. Like it's specifically a kind of aborted past, uh, an expectation that you had of, the, both of, that you had of the, the, the dead person um, and your relationship with them. Like say the plans you had together, you know, now you'll never go to Paris, you know, kind of thing, right? And, um, and also, like, oh, the possibility, the missed opportunity of being recognized by that person. Right. Um, so that, you know, um, you know, they'll never see me accomplish, you know, this or that. They'll never see me, you know, uh, get this award or, you know, never see me graduate college and so on. So there's this sense, and Lacan is always talking about this, actually. Uh, he likes to talk about Freud, some of Freud's um, dreams of, like, dead fathers and so on. It's like he isolates this phrase, you know, a little longer and he would have known this kind of like temporal delay sort of thing where where and you can definitely see this in the way Freud talks about mourning, especially in relation to dreams of mourning, is that there's that feeling of like a missed opportunity, like ah, this if only this person had lived a little longer 
And it's always just a little bit, a little bit more, right. and this would have happened. Do you think in Hamlet the problem is there's not enough of a temporal delay? Because I think of that line, what's that famous line, the funeral baked meats did mm-hmm. coldly furnish forth yes. the marriage tables. Yeah, Isn't that, that the great That's line? That's such a great line. Uh, and, you know, Lacan, of course, yeah. also mentions that line. And I, um, I mean, yeah, Freud I mean, does, another, just, just to clarify, yeah. Freud does, I think it's parenthetical, but he does allude to Hamlet in this essay, right? In, yeah, he does. Uh, at one point, he does. Uh, what is that? I have my... You know, the, the one thing, I, I, since we're talking about it now, the one thing that I uh, is remiss that I didn't mention is that when... Like, you know, we talked a lot about Freud's take uh, that appears in the interpretation of dreams. Um, it's just a couple paragraphs. It is all, and we thought it was, you know, it was really, really great and interesting. It is also the site of what I think is the most indefensible and embarrassing thing that Freud ever oh, wrote. Oh, that's thought. true. We did not mention that. We didn't that mention is, that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Which is that what, what guys- he, he, he came to think that Shakespeare was, quote, not the man from Stratford. He's it's an Oxfordian. Most- he was the, it's the most embarrassing, uh, it's uh, indefensible <laughs> thing that Freud could have. It's for, for, just, and, 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 and I think it was Francis Bacon? No, Oxford. No, he was Oxford. in Oxford. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a great, there's a great uh, British uh, television series called Upstart Crow uh, that stars David Mitchell as Shakespeare. And in the third uh, series, um, or fourth, if the British consider the Christmas episode a series, I, I, it doesn't matter, third season, I'll just put it in American. Uh it uh, it starts to get into this thing where um, Robert Greene is trying to destroy Shakespeare, but he can't in the present because the Queen likes him. So he resolves to destroy him in the future. And so the show plays out his uh, how ridiculous the whole Oxfordian thing, and then the you know, or or that it was Marlowe, like the whole thing. And uh, it's just it's interesting to see that in a comedy. One of the other things the show does is it demystifies Shakespeare and it makes like he like he says things like, uh, well, the pen is mightier than the sword, like I say. And then he has a friend, Kate, who says, you didn't come up with that, Mr. Shakespeare, didn't I? (laughs) Nope. It's in the Bible. Matthew, and then then she also mentions that it's from something else. So they do this a lot. So on the one hand, the show That's pretty funny. like demystifies Shakespeare, and on the other hand, it makes ridiculous the idea that anyone could think that he is not well, the man from Stratford. The other problem is that Freud thought that for the worst possible reason, because he thought no yes. middle-class, educated yes. person could possibly have produced these works. So it, yes. it, is, a, it is an embarrassing... Utterly embarrassing aspect. Can't defend well, it. Well, in a way, I sympathize with that part because, like, what person could produce that? That's true. That's true. That's true. I guess, but, but it's yeah. it's just, it's, no, it's the worst. It's the worst thing. Um, yeah, But he does yeah. mention, he does mention it in this, uh, or mention Hamlet in this essay. So, uh, to sorry to have derailed us. Did you find the reference in the in the essay, Jamie? Where, yeah. Yes. I did. Yeah. I did. It's that lovely part where he says, it's this great irony, right? That uh, the melancholic's complaints, you know, he's petty, he's egoistic, dishonest, lacking dependency. He's like, he might come pretty close to understanding himself. <laughs> I love that part. But, you know, he says, nonetheless, you know, if someone has that kind of attitude, we, we can't doubt that they're sick. Same as Hamlet. He says, for there can be no doubt that if anyone holds and expresses to others an opinion of himself, such as this, an opinion which Hamlet held both of himself and of everyone else, he is ill, whether he is speaking the truth or whether he is being more or less unfair to himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, it, it, it's like I was trying to say before about critique. I, there is, of course, a, a tendency to critique that's just very important in this essay, um, both in Morning and Melancholia, I would say. But I think the emphasis is a little more on melancholia. and um, But it's a critique that, um, that, that somehow inverted toward 
the self. It has to go by way of the self. And I, or the ego, let's say. And, and um, you know, I think there's a line where Lacan has, I think it's Seminar 10, where he's, just, he's talking about mourning and melancholia. And he says, in melancholia, it's the object that triumphs. Uh, meaning that the aggression, it just, it's, it's just repeating Freud in a way, but in a, a, a I think, a very elegant, elegant way, which is to say that, you know, the melancholic attacks them, the mirage of themselves, but in order to get at the object, but then in the end, that only means that the object triumphs. Um, yeah, so, I, I, and I think that's, I think that's, um, I think that's apt. Yeah. And I think, too, that you, if you look at it as a melancholic, I mean, one could make an argument that Hamlet is melancholic. Um, and after all, he is, there is a, especially if you see melancholia as a, almost psychotic, because, I mean, I've always been a little suspicious of the claim that he's neurotic, because he, because he talks to ghosts, you know, he's taking orders from his dead father. Um, and it seems to me that what he's getting, you know, what he tries to get at in the end is like, he can only achieve the thing he wants by destroying himself. And that's totally melancholic. I only take orders from my toothbrush when I need to replace <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, machinic head. So I want, can I, before we get to the slash and burn McGowan portion yeah, of this okay. podcast, I was getting ready to go there. So <laughs> Jamie, I would like to, cause you just introduced some really nice things. I want, so I'm going to ask, ask you a series of questions and okay. yes. And I, I, the, it's just kind of like a recap of your take. I want to make sure that we have it both. I re- honestly, like both for me and, and, and for the, the audience more generally. So I'm going to go through these questions. Morning, tell me yes or no if I've got this right. Uh, morning is you place on the side of desire, melancholia on the side of drive. Yes. Yes. Oh, but no, 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 that that's fine. That's fine. No, no, we don't. No, it's fine. I'm gonna keep going. Okay. Um, uh, morning dissatisfaction in the way that things have played out uh, in like a relationship or something um, social, whereas melancholia, the target is more the self. Yes. Morning includes consciousness of the dissatisfaction and an ability to situate it. Okay. Okay. That's what Freud means by ambivalence. Excellent. I okay. Think. Very nice. Um, I think we put elegy on the side of mourning and nostalgia, no cut on the side of melancholy. Nah, I don't, I don't really subscribe to it because okay. I think an elegy can be either. You know, I, I don't think the genre is. Oh, that's it. Well, that's that. I, I think that we, maybe we'll have you on for another podcast. I think that, that, I think it has to kind of be one or the other because then it, if it has both, then it's, well, then it's not, I don't, I don't know how it's theoretical then. Uh, it, it makes it too, uh, too particular. And, uh, but anyway, okay. So we can throw that out, but nostalgia, you put nostalgia, no cut you're putting on the side of melancholia. Uh, yeah, I would say, but uh, again, I mean, I, you're going to be disappointed again. <laughs> you, I think you think it can also be on the side of morning? It can also be a morning. It just, but it, it would be differently articulated. Okay. There are different structures here. I'm not saying that I'm not rejecting theory. I'm just, no, 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 know, I, no I don't think in you a are. Way, it's like, you know, think about like, Freud's Freud's method in this essay too. He keeps saying, you know, look, there's a lot of different things that we call melancholia, a lot of different cases, not all of them add up. I'm just going to try to get at this one sort of intersection and that's where the concept comes in. Okay. So I guess, so in my, in the question I had, a, and I had a couple other just based on sort of uh, how the conversation went. My, I, do you, do you think, I guess this, this would be, be my thing. Do you think that the ultimately uh, there is a malleability between the two terms? 
where they could fall into each other? Is that is that something that is because uh, I think I think uh, t- uh, t- I think Todd and I are trying to uh, insist on some hard lines, but I, and I think that you that you you think that that is not the way that this works. Is that correct? I think there's hard lines, but I don't think they're the same hard lines. Probably I don't know. <laughs> I, I might be insisting on different hard lines. Okay. Um, the ones that I insisted on were the the, the temporal one, where it's a perspective loss. Okay. Uh, in melancholia mm-hmm. uh, versus his more, say, historical loss. I, I don't know a better way of putting it at the moment, but uh, loss that's more situated in the subject's history in mourning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relationship between the object A and the big other, okay. like those are those are distinctions I would make. Okay. 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 That's great. No, that's really, really nice. I think um, just for, for this point, the I, I like that the prospective loss being on the side of melancholia and then the, uh, the, the sort of the, the historical loss. I like loss. that a lot. Yeah, yeah, but like historical loss being on the yeah. side of mourning. That's great. I think we, I think we can both, uh, all, or uh, we both, meaning all three, uh, can, uh, can can get behind that one. So uh, now, Todd, cha- yeah, champing at the bit. T- t- yeah, take, take this, take this, take this elitist away, Freud Tom. guy down a peg or two. He doesn't believe Shakespeare is Shakespeare. I, I, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I love Freud, but um, <laughs> so, so. I got this, I had this, I've had kind of always had this idea about this essay, but I really had it when I was talking to a colleague of mine, I think I can name her, she's Sarah Alexander, and I said to her, she's going to teach, I usually teach the class Intro to Graduate Study of Theory, next year she's going to teach it, and she's like, I don't, I'm like, just don't teach any psycho, she's a Marxist, and I'm like, don't teach any psychoanalysis, better to have none than... And she's like, no, I like some Freud. And I said, oh, Morning and Melancholia. She's like, oh, I love that essay. <laughs> and so I'm like, of course you do, because everybody that hates psychoanalysis or is, a, is hostile to psychoanalysis or is agnostic towards psychoanalysis loves, or it's the one essay they love. And it's because no, Todd, I think... T- say, say it like we're going to clip this for YouTube. Do, do the clippable version. Just say... People who hate Freud love this essay. Just say that. People, okay. <laughs> People who hate Freud love Morning and Melancholia. There we go. Why <laughs> is that? Right? Why is that? And I think, so it's, a, I'll just give another little example of this. So I was talking to my other friend, Hyunju Yu, about the filmmaker Jim Jarmusch. And I said, you know, I love the film Ghost Dog. She goes, proof you hate Jim Jarmusch. <laughs> and so if anybody says to me, I love the essay. My favorite essay by Freud is Morning and Melancholy. I, ju- I just immediately say, proof you hate Freud. Because, and here's why I think this, and I think it's interesting to me, Jamie, that you said this is prefatory toward the discovery of the death drive. Because I think mm-hmm. it's absolutely his last attempt to avoid discovering that. <laughs> so... And the reason why doesn't I think, that kind of amount to the same thing, though? It's a turning point. I, I guess so, but I think it's, but, but or it's a brick I guess wall. I, you got to go in the other yeah, direction. Yeah, I nah. mean, yeah, but it's not but, a brick wall. Yeah. But I don't see any hints at what will be death drive. Instead, I see ways of thinking about what structures subjectivity that fit in with the most commonsensical ways of thinking. And let me. So the, here's the here's the line that really gets to me. So he he thinks about uh, for one thing there's no dis- there's 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 little discussion of 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 basic psychoanalytic concepts in this essay, which is why I think people that don't like don't like psychoanalysis like this essay. But here's the here's the idea. So he said he he wants to understand 
melancholia, which he identifies as this attack on what he calls the patient's, the subject's own ego, right? But then he says, through his analysis of it, he, just, he, he, he unpacks it, he, and then he comes to this conclusion that we perceive that self-reproaches are reproaches against a love object which have been shifted away from it onto the patient's own ego. So he, he, he's, he's confounded by this self-critique, and then he says, well, wait a minute, no, it's really just a, a critique of the other or of the loved object that has been displaced or shifted back to the self. So, so the critique or the, the, the reproach against the self has to be secondary because at this time, Freud thinks there's a certain, and this ties to the narcissism essay, actually, there's a certain, uh, I don't know, like self-love uh, in subjectivity rather than, and I think this is what he discovers in 1920 and Beyond the Pleasure Principle, rather than a certain inherent self-destructiveness. So I would say that, mm. that there would be no need to even explain the self-reproaches of the melancholic after 1920. They would be, that, that would just be self-evident, like that, that self-laceration, whereas here he has to reduce it to a displaced critique of the other. And so that's why I think it's really, it fits in with a completely, you know, we're self-interested beings, kind of Adam Smithian, Ricardo, David Ricardo, homo economicus version of subjectivity. And then in 1920, he's going to break radically from that. So that's why I, I, that's why I find this essay a little it's a little bit like, I know you'd love it, Jamie, and I feel bad because I really, really like you. I think you're smarter than me and so it's really hard for me to say this but it's like the, the ridiculous size it's like the uh <laughs> it's like the nails on the chalkboard for me this essay i have to say well look i i'll tell you this i i actually agree with you that people who hate freud like this essay but i think it's because they misread the uh, essay okay there we go good and i'll so, tell you why because i and take, i i've been thinking take. about this a long time because uh, because again, this goes back in a way to the nineties thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, one person said, Greg Forder, I think said it very well. He says like this period of the rehabilitation of melancholia around the uh, turn of the century. Yep. Uh, and the, the problem was, it's a misreading what they tried to do. And this, I think at the fault is somewhat in Derrida's feet here, <laughs> because what he tried to do was to really bring together Heidegger and Freud. Uh, and there's actually an incommensurability. And I think the problem is that this goes back to the problem of finitude because there's a longstanding tradition in philosophy going back to even Aristotle, but he was always talking about this, where you have a philosophy of finitude that, that looks at the end of life as the determinant of uh, of what le leads up to it. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like it's the whole problematic of fate or destiny and then fate and free will, uh, where philosophers for the longest time have thought that a certain reflection on death as the end of life is somehow the mystery to the universe. And uh, obviously I'm, you know, vulgarizing it, but... Um, we like vulgar. But just here. for the sake of making this dichotomy, you know, because in Freud, everything changes. Uh, because it's not only sex that Freud revolutionizes, but death. And he makes death part of sex. 
And uh, just as the, you were saying before, Todd, uh, uh, about, and also in relation to the quilting point, that this is, there's a way that uh, in psychoanalysis, transcendence becomes enfolded within imminence, right? So there's a way that, um, that death becomes uh, almost an experience after all. You know, there is an experience of death, and I think that's what mourning is. It is an experience of death. I say that in a kind of hard Hegelian sense. It, it is death. Um, because not only is it the closest we come to an experience of death, but it is, it, it's what we, sign, what we signify when we're talking about death is something of the order of a mourning. Yeah, when okay. it's at its most ja- intense. Jamie, yeah. I totally buy that, and I think you should have written this essay instead of Freud, because that's, <laughs> that's really good, but I think that that, like... And, well, and let, wait, what, okay. once he, just a second, once he talks about, and, and, and I think you're right about the way he talks about mourning, and that's, and he, he should have said it's about the imminence of transcendence, which I think is the great, I mean, that's a Hege, quasi Hegelian formulation, which I think, as you nicely point out, makes the connection between Hegel and Freud. But once he gets to melancholia, don't you think he does have this notion of we're self interested beings? So, we can't be any criticism, any self-critique has to be explained through the displacement of the critique of the other. I, I mean, I think that's just, I, I don't even think I'm reading the essay in some, I mean, I think it's just openly there in the essay, yeah? Well, you know, look, I, I, I read I read that, yeah, so sure, you could say that. I mean, you know, Freud's a Viennese bourgeois, you know, uh, we know that. Uh, we know that he says ridiculous things sometimes. Like he says, like, the poor can't be psychoanalyzed. You know, Irish can't be psych... You know, we know that he says these ridiculous things from time to time. But, you know, I like... I really like this book, and I'm sure you know it well, Todd. Uh, Samuel uh, Tomsic is his name, right? Uh, the Capitalist Unconscious. Yeah. I mean, you, of course, have also written about, you know, Desire and Capitalism. It's an excellent book. And, um, you know, I, the way that you guys... I, it seems to me that when you read... Uh, Freud, in relationship to this sort of political critique, there is a way to read Freud, and also there's a way Lacan reads Freud, where there's something in Freud more than Freud. And I think that's what you always have to be reading for uh, when you're reading even this essay. And, all right, so just to come back to this point about the death drive, I just want to flag a few points where okay, I really yeah, think... Good. Yeah. yeah, he says... At the, right at the beginning, he says, we should regard it as an appropriate comparison to call the mood of mourning a painful one. We shall probably see the justification for this more in a position to give a characterization of the economics of pain. You know, this is the riddle of masochism. He's already talking about... Jamie, I mean, this can, is, I, can, can I just throw it. something to, yeah. to, to... I'm gonna... Because I'm always... Because I'm always helping this McGowan guy. I just want to throw something <laughs> for you to, to potentially help the, this claim you're gonna make. Um, do Are you... Is your argument that in this essay are the seeds of him saying that masochism is primary in the psyche? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so yeah. wrap, wrap it, wrap it around that. Okay. So yeah, and that's where you know you see it in uh, what he talk, what he says about melancholia, is particularly when he talks about the the pleasure, the almost the trauerspiel. <laughs> think of Benjamin here, the morning play of the melancholic where there is a kind of luxuriating in the relationship to loss. This, of course, I think this is another reason why uh, <clears throat> melancholics, people who <laughs> otherwise reject Freud, uh, you know, love this essay because it speaks to their soul. 
<laughs> that there's perhaps a way that this kind of like um, it's a sort of academic tendency, you know, of this kind of like uh, uh, savoring uh, a certain relationship to loss. Um, anyway, that's masochism. You know, he's just pointing directly to it. He says in, in melancholia, there's masochism. And it's a masochism that is not organized in any other way than as a kind of, it's a primary. It's a primary relation to the object for the, for the melancholic because he also situates it at the level of drive. So if it's at the level of drive and it's uh, taking pleasure in loss, then that's primary masochism. And then, yeah, and but, then the other thing, of course, which more people talk but, about but, in Strachey. Yeah. So, oh, sorry, but the, but the self-reproach thing, uh, as you know, and you know, you should have probably we probably should have said something about it at the beginning. Is it's one of the things a lot of people like to say, is that it's the sort of beginning of Freud beginning to to theorize su- the superego. I guess what gets me is like, I I think you're right to say, and I am being too harsh about it, I'm sure, but I think you're right to say that. There's certainly an interest in masochism here that, that is not present, maybe, or it becomes increasingly present in Freud's thought. But I think that he still is saying, like, like he, he still is saying that they're not that they're, that the, the the melancholic is not is first outraged by the other, or first is critical or attacking the other, and then displacing this onto the self. And this is why he says. They aren't ashamed and don't hide themselves since everything derogatory they say about themselves is at bottom said about someone else, right? So they are far from evincing toward those around them the attitude of humility and submissiveness that would alone befit such worthless people. On the contrary, they make the greatest nuisance of themselves and and always seem as though they feel slighted and have been treated with great injustice. And it's because they only can take up this attitude because... Melancholia is originally a hostility towards the object, right? And it's not towards the ego or to the self, which is how I define death drive, right? Like, so I don't, I think that there's, that, that there's a, this self-destructiveness that Freud is going to discover, or this prime, you could say primacy of masochism, that Freud is going to discover uh. in 1920. It's not yet, I don't think he's yet come to that. And I think his... And I wasn't trying to say, I'd never say this thing like, oh, Freud just has these prejudices. I don't care about that. But I just, what I mean is he still, I think the revolution of 1920 is the, is the most important Freudian revolution. And I think this text is still ha- caught up really in pleasure principle and this earlier conception of things, which is, I don't know, for me, that's what, that's what stunts the potential radicality of it, I guess. I think Todd. F- uh, yeah. For, I, oh, sorry, Jamie. Okay. Um, I think t- uh, Todd, to to distill to distill your claim, would you say it's fair fair for me to say that what Freud is holding on to a little bit is that the um, what uh, what he comes to with the, the death drive and, the, and and masochism being primary would mean. It would entail saying that we are all melancholics. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And that's that he, what I want to say. Yeah. Right. yeah exactly. Right. And he's not here saying that. It's still it, here. This is what you're saying is a. It's an at best. It's a secondary masochism. And it right. Is, exactly. It is, it is exceptional. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's why I thought Jamie's point of linking melancholy to drive is so important. Right. If melancholy yeah. is linked to drive, then it's linked to primary to to the primacy of that structure because drive is originary. 
right? And then, but then it, of course you have to reconceive melancholia as not the loss of anything, but the state of lack, right? Like no, but that, that, and I, I don't thought, think no, Todd. But that it, it, I think that helps kind of like again, like like distill to some of the things that Jamie's been saying because I like the thing with with drive is like why 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 is loss at the center of there it's a it is a, to go back like 40 minutes it's a loss of a of a loss that was that was not there that was never there it right. was never there and right. that's why right. that's that's why repetition works the way that it does because right. it's not there if there actually was an object then you know it could be you you know it could be i don't know talked about mediated in some way but or, or, or whatever rediscovered but, right? rediscovered right. even yeah but yeah. it's not yeah, it's not sure. there to even sure. be dis- not, it wasn't even there in the first place not not there right. to be discovered in the second place right right you know i find this to be a very performative text too in that i think freud is really struggling with himself so i did actually agree with you todd that it's well as i say a turning point which means both that he's coming up with something new but at the same time he's still trying to cling to the old it's how how apropos right um, and to give it, I, I hope it's not too much of a psychobiographical twist. I don't mean it that way, but of course, this is the period of time when, you know, Freud is still trying to perhaps even mourn his relationship with Jung, right? Cause like the break, the breakup with Jung happens, uh, was like 1913, I think like right around the time he wrote morning and no, melancholia, exactly which is when time. he right. first, right. Yeah, when he first develops this whole argument, as I say, if you read chapter two of Totem and Taboo, the whole thing with self-reproaches is already there. So Freud was already thinking about it. And we know Totem and Taboo was inspired by Jung uh, and the Schreber case, too. So the whole fascination with the, the narcissism and psychosis, like Freud really like felt like for that he got like new wings uh, from a certain influence that came from Jung. I'm not saying it was really Jung. But it was something that kind of like his relationship to uh, Fleece earlier on, like he somehow Jung became this kind of a sounding board for Freud that allowed him to uh, to to go in a new direction. And he kind of gave too much credit to Jung and thought that it was coming from him. But I don't think it was. And so I think what's happening is that he came to realize um, and again, I don't mean to stress it too much as a psychobiographical, but I'm just trying something out here. This is a new uh, uh, reading I'm trying to develop, is that I think that in a way, Freud was trying to even mourn uh, something of what was it that had led him astray with Jung? You know, what was it that had uh, almost infatuated him with Jung that made him want to, uh, to go in this whole other direction? And so all the stuff he's saying about narcissism, structured narcissism, and, and uh, the way he's starting to think about psychosis and all of that, I feel like that's in the background here. And I think that, you know, even mourning, he's still trying to think about a relationship to, um, you know, culturally, you know, what is it that uh, is a psychopathological structure of, say, everyday life um, that we can think about if we start to take seriously things like, you know, myths and uh, these like, you know, these sort of themes that Jung is always talking about. Uh, so I kind of feel like that's sort of in the background. Um, but I also think that if you look at Jung's departure from Freud, and, you know, Freud, of course, kind of exhaustively, you know, just says what the problem is, uh, is that Jung is basically just a moral psychologist. You know, he's drawing in that way. He's just drawing from the tradition that, you know, again, Aristotle inaugurated that just sees everything in terms of like, okay, the point of life is to actualize yourself before you die. 
and then a death, you know, in that sense is almost like a culmination of personality. And that's in Aristotle, and it's in so much philosophy that tries to put all this importance on the reflection on death. And that's totally in Jung, and that's like where Jung takes everything. And, um, and Freud is really trying to keep to the theory of sexuality and the theory of libido. So I think that this essay is one of the places where he's really trying to separate himself, separate himself out from that trajectory. I, I think in the in the background also of this uh, this conversation and, and is is maybe helpful for all the different topics that we touch, which is the essay for itself, the essay politically, uh, the essay in relation to uh, Lacan and what happens in in uh, Lacanian development of these concepts is the uh, the social because I think I think that's the real the uh, divi- uh, dividing line for Jung and. Uh, Freudian and, and Lacanian psychoanalysis is that the the I think that the mere the mere idea of the social for Jung becomes itself mythologized like these connections across mm-hmm. culture like how could to like I, I said this recently in an email to, to a listener like uh, the for, for Jung like you know the idea that two cultures in disparate geographical locations could come up with you know uh, foundational myths uh, that they knew no- nothing of each other like this is like some kind of miracle. And it's like, maybe it's not that unique of an idea. Also, you know, human civilization all started in the same place. So it's, and if you cut out the idea of the social as, or or really of this self being social first through, uh, you know, uh, familial uh, uh, structures, uh, uh, of course, and then familial structures having all kinds of other like, you know, social uh, knowledges and, and attachments. If you kind of cut that out and then you mythologize that second, then you get the basis for a lot of the things that Jung uh, does and the, the insights that, that he has. It, it comes from that. Whereas it certainly seems not just in uh, like in this essay, but in uh, a, a, a lot of things that we've been talking about recently is like, what is the, what is the status of the social and the symbolic itself? And I mean, I think this, part of the reason why, you know, psychosis has come up in this and the, uh, discussions of uh, seminar three and, uh, the, this, like there, there is something, I guess I'll put it this way. When we talked about the, uh, Todd and I, when we talked about the, um, the, the social and the symbolic, uh, for the, uh, for, for the psychotic, the, the way that Lacan moves this in seminar three, uh, they, have this incapacity of moving toward quilting point, this like glue that makes, uh, Signific- that halts signification. And you can o- almost see that same idea in Jung from another angle, which is like, there is an impossibility of meaning. How did this even, how does social, me- how did it even happen? It's, it's got to be some sort of like mm-hmm. mythological thing and it implies a collective unconscious. Like how else could we all understand it? When, again, as I think we said in the previous episode, like for Lacan, it's like, it, it's not really a mystery. The The thing is, is that like, like, Yes, all kinds of signifiers can mean all kinds of things, and yet we still communicate with each other. There is still mm-hmm. there is still a fixity to it, and that's the thing that is that is important, and that's and that's quilting point. And uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah. It, I, anyway, so uh, I I did not, I don't think I expected uh, quilting point to come in uh, in into into this conversation, but it has. Uh, Open oh, morning is all about the quilting yeah. point. I, I totally agree with you on that, and and also. What Lacan also mentions too is that in say mania, for instance, yes, yeah. the problem is that you can't locate the quilting point. Yeah, you lo- you lose the thread. Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, so yeah, yeah. So I think all of that's great. Um, I'm really glad we're bringing up the quilting point. It's perfect for for this uh, essay. I think. Um, I wanted to say one more thing, which about Jung, which is that 
you know, the other thing is that he doesn't have a concept of the subject, really. Yeah. No, that's you know, it's, it's about the self. Mm-hmm. He yes. doesn't, group, group, there's nice no point. split subject there. Yes. And that's really, I think, the dividing line between, like, maybe most, most fundamentally, the dividing line between Jung and Freud Lacan. I mean, there are many things you could say, but this is also why Jung is not even original. I mean, like, yeah, the best of Jung is he takes from Freud, and then the rest is just that moral psychology that's been around long before Freud, and... And then he just, you know, this sort of clunky idea of a collective unconscious, you know, yeah, there's a way you can sort of read that. Okay, if you were being a little more precise, okay, he's talking about the symbolic order, he's talking about the big other, you know, um, there is a trans-individual dimension uh, to, uh, that's, that is the symbolic order, is the trans-individual, and uh, which, you know, which is in Freud. Um, The problem, part of the problem is that Freud tends to go to biology a lot of the time to try to explain the trans individual. He says like, you know, it's like the individual is part of the germplasm, you know, it's like, you know, as a sort of in service to the, you know, he's still kind of caught up on Darwin. And that's another thing I think about this essay is that it's also a kind of turning point that sort of begins with Totem and Taboo too, uh, where he's breaking away from this Darwinian paradigm. Like he says a few places, this is throughout the metapsychological papers, but he says in a few places there uh, that like, yeah, I mean, we're going to biology, but if something better comes along, I'll take it. You know, it's like, you know, yeah, I really want to keep psychoanalysis away from biology. But but, you know, he but he he doesn't have there's no structural linguistics that he can draw on, you know, so I think that's really where Lacan's intervention becomes really crucial here. Well, there were, uh, it, that did exist. Yeah. He just didn't know that it existed. Because <laughs> I mean, Saussure was writing. I mean, Saussure was not writing, I guess. He was giving lectures. So he could have mm-hmm. he been acquainted, but he, he, he wasn't. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, he knew a different Saussure. There's like another That's Saussure. right. That is true. <laughs> that is true. But Jamie, I, what I really appreciate about this last intervention with, uh, in reference to Jung was that you've given us a third possibility for the lesson of the, of the podcast. That is... The uh, the David Cronenberg film, and there was a new Cronenberg film out right now, yeah. so it's kind of it'll be appropriate. Uh, the the Cronenberg film, which I don't think we've ever recommended, which I really like, called A Dangerous Method, there but because I was I was a little bit fearful that we'd be stuck with either Full Metal Jacket or, <laughs> and I we there, there's no way that we <laughs> or, melancholia, make, or melancholia or yeah. melancholia right, yeah. and there's no way we cannot even the first part of melancholia. Well, they're half good. Yeah, but that, those cannot be the lesson. So the, the lesson is, I think, it has to be watch A Dangerous Method because it, it, it's a fascinating film that attempts to be on Jung's side and then the, the, like, the facts overwhelm it and it ends up being on Freud's side. So that's what I, I, I remember watching it with a Freudian friend of mine. He's like, I think he was trying to make a pro-Jung film and it just didn't really work out that way. So <laughs> That's a, what happens. Yeah, that's <laughs> what happened. All right, guys, over and out. <laughs> Over now. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>